By way of review, we're continuing our study of the Bible's teachings regarding the duties of Christian fellowship using a treatise written by the Puritan John Owen. That treatise is our framework and our guide. We're working through section two of Owen's treatise. That section is entitled Rules for Walking and Fellowship with Respect to Other Believers. Last Sunday, we began our study of Owen's fourth rule in this second section, and that rule stated this, believers must maintain an unremitting care and effort to preserve unity, both in general and in particular. So that was his rule. And so last Sunday, we began studying the nature of biblical unity. John Owen states in his treatise that there are three aspects to this nature of biblical unity. Last Lord's Day, we considered the first one. There is spiritual unity. And this spiritual unity, by way of review, is wrought by the Holy Spirit, who indwells believers. And this spiritual unity is nurtured by the believer's union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And consequently, we can, as Christians, have real unity with other Christians within the same local church. And we can have true spiritual unity with other Christians who are scattered throughout the world in other biblical churches. And after examining key passages which teach the reality of spiritual unity, we then noted that the Apostle Paul identified two specific and common sins which Christians must shun and mortify. And those two sins are selfishness and pride. For the sins of selfishness and pride, I noted last Sunday, are fully antagonistic to the realities of spiritual unity, peace, and love within the church. And then we considered two specific and necessary graces which all Christians must clothe themselves with, self-denial and humility. And if we would mortify those two sins of selfishness and pride and exhibit these graces of self-denial and humility, we need to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Faith is absolutely necessary. Faith not in ourselves, not in others here on earth. Faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone, as the resurrected Christ, gives us the grace and power to live as he lived. And he is also our supreme example of self-denial and humility. So that's a quick review of what we have studied recently, and now we come to new material in this same section of Owen's treatise. So the second aspect of spiritual uh, biblical unity is ecclesiastical or church unity. So first of all, we considered spiritual unity. Secondly, now Owen says there is ecclesiastical or church unity. And those two aspects of unity, spiritual and ecclesiastical, are intimately related for where there is spiritual unity among the members of a local church, there will, of course, be ecclesiastical unity, 
as well. Turn in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. What we read here, of course, has been recorded by Luke after the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 46, and day by day, continuing steadfastly with one accord in the temple and breaking bread at home, they took their food with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to them day by day those that were saved or that were being saved. Now notice, first of all, from this brief passage, the words in verse 46, and day by day, continuing steadfastly. Notice from these words there in verse 46 that Luke revealed the reality of church unity. Luke wanted his readers to understand from these words that daily, as a matter of purpose, the disciples in the Jerusalem church were adhering to each other because they were devoted to each other. And that is the meaning of the word which is translated continuing in this verse. They were adhering to one another. They were devoted to one another. The believers you see there in Jerusalem, they were not fragmented. They were not chaotic, even though they were very large in number at this point in time. There were at least 3,000 genuine believers in the church in Jerusalem. Adhering to and being devoted to each other in the church, they all gave careful attention to the needs of each other. As the immediate context reveals, if you look at chapter 2 of Acts and verses 44 and 45, spiritual unity among the Christians in Jerusalem in that church birthed and fostered ecclesiastical unity among them, which manifested itself in tangible love and benevolence. So spiritual unity among the believers, fostered an ecclesiastical unity, and that manifested itself in tangible love and benevolence one toward the other. But notice, secondly, from the words of verse 46 in Acts chapter 2, these words, with one accord, or some Bibles translate, with one mind. Notice from these words, with one accord, with one mind in the temple, that Luke continued to highlight the marvelous unity of the church in Jerusalem. The Greek word which Luke used here, translated one accord or with one mind, is one of Pastor Carlson's favorite Greek words, homothumadon. And I agree with Pastor Carlson, it is a wonderful word. The word refers to an action agreed upon unanimously with one mind, with one purpose, and with common consent. That's the meaning of that Greek word, translated one accord or with one mind. In other words, the Christians in the Jerusalem church were united in mind, 
and purpose scripturally, spiritually, ecclesiastically, and practically. And they lived in harmony with each other. And underscoring that this was ecclesiastical unity, Luke specifically noted that this continuing steadfastly with one accord was in the temple. This unity was a church unity, for the church met for worship and for the preaching of the word of God in the temple. That's what Luke notes here. But notice, thirdly, from this passage in Acts 2, Luke also described the fruit of this church unity. We see that in the latter part of verse 46 and verse 47. All the people rejoiced in the goodness of God. That was a fruit of the church unity. And that was shown to them. That goodness of God was shown to them in God's provision of their earthly needs. Because Luke tells us they were eating their food with joy. It's a very wonderful word there. With exaltation. They were exalting in God who was providing for their earthly needs. And they were doing this, you see, in their homes. But then notice also another fruit. This church unity was clearly observed by the citizens of Jerusalem, the unbelievers there in Jerusalem. And consequently, the citizens of Jerusalem, they looked favorably upon the Christians in the church. They looked favorably upon the Jerusalem church at this point in time, at least. And that was a mercy not to be despised. They looked upon the people in this church in Jerusalem and they saw the way they loved one another. They saw the peace. They saw the concord. They saw the unity. They probably even heard of or observed the way they helped one another practically, helped one another with food needs, etc. And they marveled at this, you see. They, get, they gained favor with the citizens of Jerusalem, and this was the fruit of their church unity. It was the work of the Spirit of God, of course. But notice another fruit. Most significantly, it was in this context of church unity that the Lord blessed the Jerusalem church, adding daily to their number those whom the Lord was saving. That's what Luke records here in this passage. That was a marvelous reality, this fruit of salvation. And so we need to understand that there is a direct connection between church unity and the blessing of God upon the preaching of the gospel and the salvation of sinners. Where there is church unity, frequently God will indeed bring an unusual blessing with the salvation of sinners. If that is not happening, though there is church unity, we should not say, well, this isn't working. We should say, no, church unity is what God commands and God desires and it glorifies God. And it is in that context that God does save sinners, certainly not usually in the context of disunity. So that's what happened here in Jerusalem. There was this adding daily those whom the Lord was saving. But now turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. 
Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. So we're looking at ecclesiastical or church unity here in the scriptures. Acts 4 verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them said that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles their witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, in the context of Acts chapter 4, persecution of the church had now begun. Peter and John were apprehended by the Sadducees, and they were grilled with questions about their preaching activities, and then they were released on this occasion. This opposition and persecution did not divide the Jerusalem church, which had now grown to over 5,000 people. That you can see in Acts 4, verse 4. So the church was even larger now. Instead, note what Luke tells us in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Note, first of all, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and soul. The Christians in the Jerusalem church were literally heart and soul one. That's the way it is in the original. So that not one of them said that his possessions were his own, but rather all things were shared with others as any had need. This was not communism. This was not a forced distribution of wealth. It was Christians within the church that was unified, seeing a need here or a need there, and that Christian had the ability to help that other brother or sister with their need, and they did it freely and willingly, you see. They were of one heart and soul. Selfishness did not characterize the people of God in the church. Love and sacrificial generosity characterized them. They loved one another even as Jesus Christ had loved and continued to love them. But notice, secondly, from Acts 4, 32 and 33, the fruit of this church unity. We are told by Luke that the apostles were given great power, literally mega power, to testify of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God also poured out, we are told by Luke, great grace, literally mega grace, upon all of the members of the church in Jerusalem. God's blessing of power upon the preaching of the word of God and God's blessing of grace upon the members of the church was the fruit of this church unity. Do you see that, brethren, in the passage there? There's church unity, and then there is blessing from God upon the preaching of the word of God and blessing upon the members themselves and their lives one with another. There was great power and great grace. But at the same time, the powerful declaration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God in the hearts and lives of the believers in the church was also the root of 
of this church unity. You see, it was both the fruit of church unity and it was also at the same time the root of church unity. And we need to see that and we need to marvel and we need to pray that God would so grant us even greater measures of church unity, that we would see greater measures of God's great power and great grace upon the preaching and upon the lives of the people of God. But now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. First Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfected together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been signified unto me concerning you, my brethren, by them that are of the household of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I mean, that each one of you says, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And there we stop our reading of this portion. So notice, first of all, from this passage, Paul's urgent appeal for unity in the church. You see that in verse 10. It's easy to read the first part of verse 10 and not really think much about what Paul was writing. Remember, he was guided by the Spirit of God in what he wrote, so that what he wrote, they were the words of the Apostle Paul, but they were also totally the words of God. God guided Paul as he wrote these words. These were not just nice things at the beginning of this portion of this letter to this church in Corinth. So notice Paul's urgent appeal for unity in the church in verse 10. He wrote this letter, first of all, to a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was a church which had many problems. And one of those problems was divisions caused by bickering, infighting, selfishness, lovelessness. This problem of disunity in the church in Corinth was so serious that Paul very swiftly addressed this sin at the beginning of his letter. He gave a greeting, etc., but almost immediately he dived into this particular problem. Paul told the Corinthians that he had learned of these serious sins of quarreling and strife from members of the household of Chloe. We don't know who this Chloe was. We don't know much about this. But it is an example where it's not necessarily gossip, slander, sin, or any such thing for someone to reveal to another one. There is a problem here. Now, that could end up being gossip, or it could be, but it doesn't have to be. It wasn't wrong, apparently, for this uh, household of Chloe to speak this to Paul or to write this to Paul. And with these opening words of his letter, Paul drew alongside 
the Corinthian Christians, and he pleaded with them as brethren, you see. He had a heart for them. He had a love for them. Even though they were bickering, even though they were selfish, even though there were divisions, it was, in his mind, a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he pleaded with them as brothers and sisters in Christ to repent. Now, he didn't use the word repent here at the beginning of his letter. But when you read it, it's very clear. That's what he's urging them to do. And to do this, he said, you must do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 10. Again, those words written by Paul were not just nice things that apostles have to say or nice things that pastors have to say. Paul wanted them to understand that he was urging them to change their thinking, change their ways in the church, in Corinth, and that they were to do this as brothers and sisters in Christ, and they were to do this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were to think upon Christ, all that he had done for them, all that he was yet doing for them. They were to think upon Christ, and that was to motivate them to love Jesus Christ and to love the people of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church in Corinth, and thus foster biblical Christian unity in their midst. Paul reminded these Christians that the church in Corinth belonged to Jesus Christ and not to the members of the church, not to any of the leaders in the church in Corinth, not to the pastors in the church in Corinth, not to the deacons in the church in Corinth, not to any prominent individuals in the church in Corinth. This church in Corinth was Jesus Christ's possession. And when you think along those lines, it changes your perspective and your heart about how you relate to the other people in the church. That's what Paul wanted them to understand. That's what we need to understand. Trinity Baptist Church is not my church. It's not your church. It's not the pastor's church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not the church of any prominent member here. It is Jesus Christ's church. And the other members in the church have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and his blood. That thinking changes your whole perspective and heart, how you relate to others. And that's what Paul wanted these Corinthian Christians to understand. So that was his urgent appeal for unity. But notice, secondly, from this 1 Corinthians 1 passage, the positive twofold fruit of repentance, which Paul exhorted the Corinthian Christians to bring forth in their relationships within the church. A positive twofold fruit of repentance they were to bring forth. Notice what he says there in verse 10. First of all, you must all speak the same thing. Harmony and unity flourish in any biblical church when Christians lay aside their differing judgments about secondary issues. When Christians abandon all party slogans which foster strife, when they speak the same thing. Again, 
We are reminded of the vital importance of doctrinal unity in these very words of the Apostle Paul in this very exhortation. When Christians within a church believe and love the same biblical truths, they will speak the same thing. Paul was not stating that Christians in the church should be mindless robots. Sometimes there are Christians who think this or say this. I've heard it through the years. Well, so we're all just supposed to be mindless. No, you're to love God with all of your mind. You're to understand his truth with your mind. You're to love God using your mind, you see. You're to love one another using your minds. He's not stating that we're to be mindless robots when he says we're to speak the same thing. He well understood the diversity, that reality of diversity within the body, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote, not everyone in the church is an eye, not everyone in the church is a hand, not everyone in the church is a foot. He made that very clear. There is diversity. Nevertheless, there will be biblical unity within a church when all the members of the church are believing and speaking the same thing concerning biblical truth, concerning biblical living. That's what Paul wanted them to understand. This is part of the fruit, one aspect of the fruit of repenting of your divisions, you Corinthian Christians. You must begin to all speak the same thing by believing the same thing. But notice, secondly, the second fruit you must all be perfected together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, this may be two separate things that Paul is writing about. Be perfected together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Maybe it's two different things. I think he's really saying the same thing. So I'm calling it a second fruit of repentance here. He's saying, be perfected together in the same mind and in the same judgment. If there's to be an ecclesiastical unity among the members of a church, then those members must be perfected together, not separated from each other. The people of God in a local church are not to be like a body with a dislocated shoulder. They're not to be like a seamless woven robe that has a 12-inch tear down the front of that seamless woven robe. Christians in a local church are to be a well-functioning, healthy body, no dislocations of shoulders or joints. They are to be like a royal robe, woven and seamless, without any tears and without any blemishes. They are to have the same convictions, the same aspirations and feelings and judgments about the teachings of the Bible and the non-negotiables of the Christian faith and life. There are things that we can disagree about. But concerning the non-negotiables of the Christian faith and living the Christian life, according to the Bible, the Word of God, we are to have this perfection together, having the same mind and the same judgment. One commentator 
wrote the following about this passage. Here I quote him. It's actually David Jackman from Let's Study 1 Corinthians. Only when God's people think alike about God himself, about Christ, about the gospel, and consequently about themselves and the church, can real unity be demonstrated. See what he's saying? We have to think alike about God, about Christ, about the gospel. Then there is unity. Continuing with David Jackman, all true Christian unity is in God's revealed truth alone. And any attempt to create unity, so-called unity, by sidetracking God's word or by bypassing the mind, bypassing anything in God's word and in our minds, will in the end be shown up as spurious nonsense, end quote. You see, trying to have unity with some artificial framework that is not biblical will not work. That's what David Jackman was saying. That's what Paul was saying. There must be this being perfected together in the same mind in the same judgment. But now from this first Corinthian passage, notice thirdly, Paul's exhortation stated negatively in verse 10, his exhortation stated negatively, I believe, with the force of a command, so that there be no divisions among you. Speak the same thing, you see. Be perfected together in the same mind, in the same judgment, so that there be no divisions among you. The word divisions is the word schismata. That should sound familiar to all of us here. We take that word, we have the word in the English, it's basically from the Greek, schism, or some say schism, schism or schism. The word divisions is the word schismata. And according to an English dictionary, a schism or a schism is a split or division between strongly opposed sections or parties caused by differences in opinion or belief. So it's a split or division between strongly opposed sections or parties caused by differences in opinions or beliefs. Where there are schisms within a church, obviously there is not unity. Harmony and peace vanish when there is schism or division within a church. And in its place, because peace and unity have been removed by such divisions, there ends up being discord, friction, and strife. In the church in Corinth, the divisions which Paul addressed and reproved were related to the formation of factions within the membership. In verse 11 of 1 Corinthians there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul identified these schisms. Some in the church were boldly proclaiming that they followed Paul as their leader. Others in the church in Corinth declared they were not following Paul, they were following Apollos. Apollos, you may remember, in the scriptures we're told he was a very eloquent speaker. 
And some said of Paul, the Corinthians themselves said of Paul, you know, his speech is kind of contemptible. So it would seem that in the church in Corinth, some wanted to follow Paul, maybe because they really believed all of the truth he proclaimed, but others wanted to follow Apollos because he was so eloquent. Apollos did speak biblical truth. I'm not saying he didn't do that. But you see, you had this division in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And then there were still others who had Cephas as their favorite preacher. And then, of course, there were the super spiritual ones in the church in Corinth. Members of the church who asserted, probably with some degree of smugness and pride, uh, that's my opinion, I don't know that that's true, but they clearly did assert that they were not like the rest of the members of the church in Corinth. They followed Christ. They were the super spiritual ones, you see. All these groups within the church, including the ones who said, we follow Christ, all these groups within the church were in serious error in their thinking, judgments, speaking, and behavior. In fact, I would say they were sinning. They chose the word serious error. I think that's correct. But I believe in their thinking, judgments, speaking, and behavior, they were sinning. They were sinning against one another. And more importantly, they were sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. This did include those who said they were following Christ. Because by their words, they had made themselves separate from the others in the church. They too were actually creating a division in the church. Well, what was Paul's reaction to all of this? He was grieved in his heart. He was vexed in his mind and soul by these factions. And he struck at the heart of those who were creating this disunity in the Corinthian church by asking in his letter, terse, piercing questions. And you see those in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 13, Paul wrote, he asked them this piercing set of questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? You see, he wanted those questions to pierce their consciences and hearts. The commentator Charles Hodge wrote the following regarding Paul's words in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Of course, the answer must be in the negative. As Christ is incapable of division, as there can be but one Christ, the church cannot be divided. It is contrary to the church's nature to be split into hostile parties, just as it is contrary to the nature of a family to be thus divided. As the head is one, so are the members one body, end quote of Charles Hodge. You see what he is writing, what Hodge wrote concerning Paul's words. This kind of division just made no sense 
spiritually, practically speaking, it was contrary to the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen to John Owen. Church unity opposes schism, divisions, splits, suspicious speculations, maverick customs, and unnecessary differences in judgment on spiritual things concerning the kingdom of Christ, end quote. You see what Owen is writing there, what he wrote. Church unity opposes all such divisions. Paul wrote that there should be no divisions among you. Now, all of us, by way of practical lessons, all of us as Christians have strong opinions and judgments to one degree or another about various matters. There are some Christians in this particular church or in any biblical church that are on this side of the spectrum. This side being that they don't have a lot of strong opinions or judgments about various things, but they do have some. And then there are those on this side of the spectrum who they have a lot of strong opinions and judgments about a lot of things. And then everybody in, in that whole spectrum, varying degrees. So that's a reality. I'm not denying that. And it's not wrong for a Christian, man or woman, to have strong opinions and judgments one of the things that's not very good to see in our day and age is men, leaders, who are wishy-washy. They don't want to have a strong opinion about anything. If they have a strong opinion expressed on one occasion and somebody criticizes it, then they change and go in a different direction. Then they're criticized, they go again. They, they have no strong convictions or opinions or judgments about anything. They're wishy-washy. That's not what we need. That's not what we want. So it's not wrong necessarily to have a strong opinion and judgment if your opinion and judgment does not contradict the teachings of the word of God. See, that's a very important qualifier. You may have a strong opinion on something, but if it contradicts the clear teaching of the word of God, then your judgment, your opinion needs to change. And there are other teachings in the word of God, which we're considering this morning that should cause some in our midst to say, well, I need to moderate my opinion on that matter because my strong opinion may be leading to disunity in the church. Our opinions and judgments must be regulated by the scriptures, the infallible word of God. Our opinions and judgments must be regulated by the scriptures, and especially they must be moderated, that is, controlled, moderated, by biblical love for Christ, for his church, for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Biblical love must moderate our strong opinions and judgments. In other words, we must be more concerned for the spiritual and practical welfare of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and for the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than we are for our own opinions and our own judgments. It's Christ and his people and his church and the unity of the church that should concern us. 
Well, what are some examples of those differing opinions and judgments which can create disunity in any local church? Well, I mentioned one in a previous class regarding the differing perspectives surrounding the coronavirus situation in our country. Should we continue sheltering at home or should we return to ordinary daily living and working tomorrow? Two ends of the spectrum. You see, that's an example of something that can create disunity within the church. Such differing strong views can indeed produce discord among the brethren if there is not the work of the Spirit of God. Discord in the church if there is not the work of the Spirit of God. And we as individual believers in this church or believers in any biblical church must be determined, God helping us, that this will not be so in our midst, that we will not permit disunity over such matters as how do we deal with this coronavirus situation. But there are other examples of strongly held opinions and judgments which can also cause division in the church, many of which relate to matters of Christian liberty or matters of personal judgment or personal opinion. And I've been in this church long enough to have witnessed some of these things start to come up and then God by his spirit and his word has dealt with them. But I'll just give some of the examples that I believe can cause, I'm not saying they are causing, but can cause disunity in the church, in this church. Drinking or not drinking alcoholic beverages can become a source of division. The Bible's teaching on that matter of Christian liberty is clear. But if it's not, if your thinking is not controlled by the teachings of the Word of God, you can permit drinking or not drinking alcoholic beverages to become a source of division, and you must not let that happen. Eating or not eating organic food, food that is organically grown. Well, that's what's best for your health. And as a Christian, you should be concerned for your body. You should only be eating foods that have been grown organically. You should not be eating anything artificial. You see, that's a strong judgment. And I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree. I'm just pointing out that you can use that and create division within the church. Somebody else is not in agreement with you. I'm sorry, I'm not going to buy organically grown foods. Either one must not create division. Drinking or not drinking raw, unpasteurized milk should surely not be a test of Christian fellowship and thus undermining unity in the church. Now, I've not heard that. So don't misunderstand me, but I've heard some individual Christians, they've said, you know, we only drink Raw, unpasteurized milk, because that is really healthy for you. It doesn't have all this, 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 this. Well, that may be totally true, but should that be the test of Christian fellowship? Should that be something to create disunity in the church? Taking or not taking vitamins. There was one point here at Trinity Baptist Church many years ago, 
There was no division, but there was starting to be that kind of a thing. Well, I use Shackley vitamins. Well, I don't use Shackley vitamins. I'm not going to spend the money on them. Well, you should be using Shackley vitamins. You see, it's something that, you sh- that should not be causing a division, whether you take or don't take any sort of vitamins. Using or not using essential oils. Administering or not administering vaccines to your children. That's an area where people have very strong judgments about the matter. You're entitled to hold your strong judgment, but you're not at liberty. You're not entitled to use that as something that will create division in the church, whether you think vaccines should be used or not used. Educating your children at home or at Trinity Christian School or at a public school. Your choice under Christ, according to his word, is your liberty. But you're not at liberty to make that a matter of division within the church. So as we return to face to face, physical worship and fellowship as a church in the near future, God willing, we don't know when that will be. We must pray for God's grace that not one of us will permit differences in judgment and opinion to create disunity. Surely we do well, faithfully, to remember and practice biblical love among ourselves. Turn now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 4. I've said to different individuals through the years that it's kind of amusing to me in one way that at weddings we read 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage. And that's perfectly appropriate to read at a wedding. I'm not denying that. But when you look at 1 Corinthians 13 in its context of the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, the reason this was written was not because of a wedding. It was because there were problems in the church. There was disunity in the church. There was quarreling, fighting, strife, division. And so what did Paul do? He wrote these words of 1 Corinthians 13 trying to bring home conviction to the Christians in the church in Corinth that your root problem is you don't have love for one another. So it's perfectly fine to be read at a wedding, but in its context, that's why he wrote these words, you see. So these words are very good for us to remember as Christians, to faithfully remember them and then to practice them. And it's easily said by me standing here this morning, It's another thing for me to descend from this pulpit and in my heart and life to love other Christians in the church. I have not arrived. I've not been perfected by any stretch of the imagination. I need to put on love, the kind of love that Paul wrote about here in 1 Corinthians 13, so that I do not create problems or factions or any schisms in the body here at Trinity or anywhere else amongst Christians. So follow now in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. Love suffers long, or love is patient. I like suffers long better. Uh, It is love is patient. But it's the idea 
of not having a short fuse. The idea of having a long fuse, you know, a stick of dynamite. I don't even know if anyone sees those kinds of things anymore. So you have a stick of dynamite, it looks like a candle, children. I don't know what color it is nowadays, and it has this wick coming out of it, like a candle. Well, you could have a short wick or fuse, or you could have a very long one. And the idea is, not with a long fuse that eventually you still explode. That's not the idea. The idea is that you don't need to be, as we say, short fuse. Someone who explodes very quickly and easily. Love is patient. It suffers long. Love is kind, not nasty. Love does not envy others, others who might be promoted or exalted by Christ in one way or another. You don't then envy them. Envy leads to jealousy. Jealousy unchecked leads to murder in the heart. Murder in the heart unchecked leads to murder. Love doesn't do that. Love does not envy. Love does not brag or parade itself. It's obnoxious for any of us as Christians to be boasting about, I did that and I did this and look at me. Love does not do that. The Corinthians were doing that. Love is not puffed up. Love, in other words, is not arrogant. Puffed up, swelled up. We say he's full of hot air, she's full of hot air. It's that idea, not being puffed up and exalted in yourself and speaking about yourself and arrogant. Verse 5, love does not behave itself unseemly. Love doesn't behave itself in such a way that is against the scheme of normal social uh, parameters. That's the idea. Love doesn't behave itself in a rude way, unseemly. Love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. Love is not provoked. When a brother or a sister in the church does something or says something or doesn't say something and somehow you feel agitated and annoyed and irritated and, and, and offended, well, step back and remind yourself of these truths here in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not provoked. And then the next set of words, love does not take account of evil. You know, sometimes the other Christian brother or sister who has done something in your mind, said something in your mind, or not done something, not said something, you think they've done evil, you're offended. But sometimes they actually haven't done anything evil, they haven't done anything sinful, but you're offended. Why? What's the point? It's pride. It's being puffed up. I'm offended. I mean, there's something wrong when you're saying that very strongly like that. I'm offended. I mean, sometimes we do need to say to a brother or sister, if you believe they have sinned, say, you know, I'm offended by what you have done or said. But let's make sure you're not just getting offended because you've been hurt. Your pride has been hurt. But love, you see, is not provoked. It does not take account of evil. It rejoices not in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love, verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And isn't this what the Lord Jesus Christ did? 
he epitomized every aspect of love here in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. He was not provoked. He was not taking account of evil done against him, real evil. He didn't rejoice in unrighteousness. He rejoiced with the truth. He bore all things. He believed all things. He hoped all things. He endured all things. He is our model, our example. He fulfilled this kind of love when he lived here on earth. And that's what we must do. We must bring our minds and hearts again and again and again back to the living Lord Jesus Christ. We must preach to ourselves and say, how did Jesus Christ live here on earth? How did he speak? How did he act? How did he react to his disciples, his apostles, to the unconverted, to the Sadducees, to the Pharisees, to the common people, to children, to adults, to sinners? How did he act? How did he react? What was his thinking? What was his speaking? And we should be humbled by that, and we should marvel at it. And then we need to move forward and remind ourselves that he went to the cross of Calvary willingly, purposefully, in love. And he died on that cross, taking the sins of all of his people. And he did that knowing he would receive the unmixed wrath of Almighty God, his Father, upon himself. And he did that willingly, he did that in love, so that you as a Christian, you as a believer in Jesus Christ, would be forgiven for all of your sins, have your guilt and iniquities washed away in his blood, and be changed, transformed, not remaining what you once were, but being transformed into his likeness. That is his purpose. He came to deliver people from their sins and to make them like himself. And when you remind yourself of these truths, these historical realities, these biblical realities, it will affect your affections. It will affect the way you live. It will affect your thinking. It will affect the way you relate to everyone else, whether in your family or in the church family. And especially, again, as God brings us back together physically, face to face, may we all be thinking of what wonderful things Jesus Christ has done for us, is doing for us, but especially his life, his death on the cross, his propitiatory death on the cross, his resurrection to glory, interceding for us even now. He is. He's on his throne. The coronavirus is not out of control. The American government is not out of control. It may seem like it to you, but you need to step back and say, well, even if that is true, Christ has everything under control. He does. We need to worship him, follow him, serve him, obey him, love him, and love one another. And God can help us to do that. So let's close in prayer asking God to help us. Father, we do ask through Jesus Christ that you would forgive us for our many sins 
including the sin of not loving you as we should and not loving one another as we should. Lord, we confess that many of us can be so easily and quickly uh, hurt and offended and find fault in others and be critical and be unloving. Lord, our God, change us by your grace and power, by the work of your Holy Spirit, using the word of God. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Make us increasingly like Jesus Christ in every aspect of our redeemed humanity for the glory of Christ, for the glory of Christ in his church, even here at Trinity Baptist Church. So receive our petitions, receive our requests as we come in his worthy name. Amen.